The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Okay, so hello everybody and welcome back to The Video Insiders. Hi Mark, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, Dror. It's uh, so nice to be on the microphone. Yes, we are on the mic again. And uh, this time we have another great video insider with us. So I'm happy to welcome uh, Greg Hale, who is the CEO of Encoding.com. Hi, Greg, and welcome to the Video Insiders. Thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure to be here virtually. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I, I know we've got some uh, really fun fun topics ahead of us. So, uh, you know, let's jump in. And I guess, um, Greg, I, I think encoding.com, you are um, definitely uh, well known in the industry. But, you know, for those three listeners that we have who who may not have had the opportunity to uh, <laughs> to work with you or, or visit you at a trade show, uh, uh, tell us, you know, what you do and, uh, you know, what's the history of the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um... So Encoding.com um, was founded 12 years ago. We are you know, kind of a self-described pioneer in cloud media processing, I would say. Um, we started in 2007 um, and really um, kind of grew up uh, alongside the public cloud environment. Um, where I felt that there was a distinct opportunity to bring to market a software as a service media processing solution for companies of all sizes, where really one of the biggest barriers to accomplishing that was the lack of you know, elastic cloud computing resources. So uh, I kind of often describe us as growing up alongside Netflix and, and their migration to the cloud or migration away from shipping DVDs. In fact, we had uh, a lot of early interactions with, with Netflix um, in 2007, serving end users and Netflix was building a similar architecture for processing content almost exclusively on Amazon. So we've focused um, exclusively and, and strategically uh, only on VOD and file-based workflows. You know, I really wanted to be the best in the world at one thing instead of mediocre at four or five things. And it's easy in this space to get pulled into uh, adjacent um, technology uh, verticals, uh, things like players or analytics or even live encoding. Uh, and so we've focused you know, almost exclusively on VOD and um, really have quite a, a robust platform now, uh, API-based platform to serve file and VOD-based workflows. If I look back on the, on the 12 years of, of uh, the company's history, I would say the first half, I often joke, was the company waiting for media and entertainment companies to embrace the cloud. And boy, um, I would say... It took longer than expected. Yeah, the media and entertainment sector really went kicking and screaming into, <laughs> into adopting public cloud. And so we got a lot of early doors shut in our face where we would present a pretty attractive cloud-based API um solution media processing solution to media and entertainment companies and boy did we hear all of the objections from security from speed 
from cost and, and really slowly but surely all of those barriers came down um, and now um, we even have a big banner that's built into our, our trade show booth that says, you know, um, uh, we'll never spend another dollar on hardware, software, media processing hardware, software, says the CTO of every major media and entertainment company. So, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think we've, we, we reached that tipping point three or four years ago. We saw media and entertainment companies move um, mezzanine storage to cloud uh, storage platforms first, and then it made a lot more sense and opened a lot more doors for us in terms of having a platform that was ready for them and, and mature, right? So the first six years when we were waiting, we were focused on um, a lot of high volume, low bit rate workflows, uh, news, sports, UGV, etc. But, but we learned a lot through that phase of the company in terms of scale, concurrency, speed, job orchestration. Um, so when media and entertainment companies were ready, there were some you know, feature additions we needed to, to add to meet their requirements. But at the end of the day, there's a heck of a lot of platform maturity underneath that. So, so we were ready for them. Yeah, that's great. So I, I guess some companies were faster to uh, adopt uh, the cloud and, and go to the cloud kind of uh, technology innovators, while others, you know, always, you know, wait, wait for uh, uh, other companies to kind of uh, clear the trail and, uh, and make sure everything is working before they, uh, they join. Yes, that's right. And definitely you were one of uh, the, the pioneers. Um, uh, can you give us a glimpse, um, if you can name any names, who were the companies to join you the most, uh, the, the earliest uh, on uh, in, in this cloud journey? Yeah, sure. If, if, if you were to, you know, what we saw a lot when we first launched, we got a lot of publicity very early on. And, and what we saw was a lot of the developers within large media and entertainment companies just signing up for our service and playing with it without really some kind of senior management level blessing on doing so. So we saw a lot of tiny little workflows from a lot of big companies, you know, maybe uh, workflows that were international based, they weren't on-premise based to start, uh, testing workflows, little UGV workflows, um, online training for big organizations, etc. In terms of the media and entertainment sector, I would say Discovery was, was really one of the first pioneers and led the way from a media and entertainment space and they were a customer early on um, with us and, uh, and and we did a lot of great innovation with them so kudos to them for taking that first leap and for other companies it was you're saying it was kind of a bottom-up process where the developers were pushing it and it was wasn't kind of a, a management a decision to go to the cloud it was developers starting playing and then telling their bosses, hey, look what I have here and how easy and convenient and cost-effective this is. Yeah, and I think that, so I think that from that perspective, there was some pressure from the bottom up where you would be in a meeting and a developer would say, listen, you know, we don't need to worry about concurrency or capacity utilization on an on-premise farm anymore. Uh, look, this API, we can send jobs to it and it'll scale, compute dynamically for us. And then I think, um, CTOs had some pressure, some outside pressure, maybe strategic pressure um, or financial pressure to uh, kind of optimize what they're doing in the cloud. And, and I think that it's a consensus now that 
the core competencies of a, of a streaming service now are user experience and recommendation and quality and content uh, production, original content, distribution, subscriber management, acquiring subscribers. The last thing, um, they've got their hands full in that space, in that crowded and competitive space. The last thing they want to do is get into the infrastructure side of things, uh, especially if it's, you know, at the mature platforms like encoding.com in that space that can fill that need. I mean, what I often joke in meetings with CTOs about that topic or, or worrying about losing some core competency is, is I say, well, do you run your own CDN? Ubiquitously, they say, no, of course not. So, you know, why would you want to build a CDN business right now, right? And I think that's echoed uh, into the media uh, the, the media processing space as well, right? It's, it's gotten to a maturity level where really in economies of scale, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to do that unless you are, you know, the top three or four video transcoding pipelines out there. You want to have that in-house and you want to buy um, and amortize out that hardware yourself. So these are the YouTubes and Facebooks and Googles of the world. Sure, they'll always do it in-house and it'll always make economic sense and strategic sense to do so. But for everyone else, um, it's hard, hard pressed to try to dedicate a huge team of engineers to try to build job orchestration and integrated integration with different clouds and keeping up with codecs and technologies. So Greg, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we, we talk in the industry uh, on the video encoding side, media processing about recipes. And it seems like everybody has their special um, recipe. Although often when you get under the hood, you know, they, they, they pulled them all out of, you know, um, TN 2224. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, um, although I think, I think fortunately now, you know, uh, people have, have realized that uh, you can actually achieve much better performance. But anyway, um, my question is, how do you cope with, you know, it seems like there's two approaches when you're operating a service like yours. You know, one would be to, um, you know, go do all the work and then basically say, hey, look, you know, let us make the best decisions, you know, basically tell us the resolution, you know, maybe we've got two or three, you know, kind of target bit rates that, you know, that we found work based on, you know, kind of low, medium, high quality, because, you know, some people, let's face it, their business model doesn't require, you know, real pristine home entertainment quality and others, it does, you know. Um, but how do you guys approach that? Do you allow your um, your clients to get in there and work with you, or do you kind of offer you know out of the box like like here's what it is, and you know um, hope you like it, or <laughs> what's your approach there? Um, I would say it depends on the market segment, but um, you know video compression parameters and settings are very dependent I, you know they're part art and part science right and so in some respects what we feel like our real value proposition to the market is is to provide all of the parameters and tools for our customers to be able to feel like they still have ownership of and differentiation on on what those encoding parameters and recipes are for their individual workflow and for their content. And so, we you know there are certain market segments where someone looks to us and says, "Can you just give me 
you know, an out of the box preset for HLS and you know, what's the bitrate ladder look like? And, and we're happy to advise based on, on what we know and what we've seen. But I would say, um, you know, as much as I just said that media and entertainment companies don't want to be in the media processing infrastructure business, they don't want to build their own CDN, they don't want to build their own orchestrator for high volume media processing. I, I think they do want to own their recipes. And I, I think there's pride in that. And I think there's, you know, it's, it's recipes, it's quality, it's file size, and it's also, you know, device compatibility. So we see, um, you know, I think by encoding.com taking over all of the heavy lifting on encoding engine management, job orchestration, ingest, egress, reporting, uh, security, etc., they then can dedicate a small R&D team to um, really honing in on recipes and playback compatibility on all the different devices, playback experience, um, you know, and then they can differentiate a streaming service with, you know, very unique, you know, rich advertising um, or, um, you know, more sophisticated ways or more clever ways to do. We've seen some innovation in thumbnail seeking, um, et cetera, that, that's in their playback. So little features, I think it's, it's a place for an R&D team to differentiate themselves in a crowded streaming market and, and, and then have some special sauce um, there, which says, you know what, well, we believe that our, our recipes are better than XYZ streaming services. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I get that, you know, what you just said, that by um, encoding.com taking on the, the engineering burden and the operational burden, like you say, the orchestration, it, it actually frees up uh, the client to spend more time on things like video quality, whereas before they would have gotten kind of muddled, you know, in the trying to just keep the service up and keep it working and, uh, you know, solving problems. So that's 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 really valuable what you do now. Uh, you know, th this whole term uh, CAE, um, content adaptive encoding, there's different variations. People in the industry call it different things, but it's no secret this is hot. And um, uh, it's something that uh, going back even just a couple of years, it was uh, sort of a novel um, uh, technology or as a novel feature. And now I think it's it's required. You know, it really is uh, if you're going to operate uh, any kind of encoding or media processing workflow. Uh, and, um, of course, you have some news to announce around that. So uh, let's talk about what you guys are doing, you know, in CAE. And um, maybe we should start with um, just, you know, what the market was requesting and and why you felt the need to uh, to to integrate um a, a system and then you know tell us what you've done i couldn't agree with you more i think that it started out um as a feather in the cap as a nice to have for a streaming service or an, uh, a publisher that really had a mature um service in market and they were looking just to kind of optimize uh, a few titles etc so we um as with a lot of technologies uh, that come to market uh, are intentionally not a first mover. We like to sit back and wait for real, um, whether it's codecs or technologies or new workflows, 
wait for them to mature a little bit, watch the market, um, and look for support in the marketplace, and and really come um, with a solution once we really believe that we're solving a, a problem for our customers, not trying to push a new technology on our customers um, just because it's a buzzword. Um, and so our, our strategy in market is really in line for CAE or CAPR, is really in line with the architecture of our entire platform. And that is that we are um, engine agnostic. We're not operating at the data level. We don't develop our own encoders. We felt um, in our journey migrating very large production workflows from on-premise to the cloud, we thought that there's a lot of value in having a unified API behind a whole suite of commercial, open source, or proprietary engines and markets. So that a customer could integrate with us once and get access to a maintained suite of tools that we see are running on premise and um, would be, you know, there's a lot of value in, in migrating to the, to the cloud. And so we believe if we start to muddle at the data layer ourselves, um, you know, again, back to this core competency on thought as well, it's, it's we'd rather do one thing really, really well and let others be experts in particular um, verticals, whether it's captions or audio or, or CAVRs. So we're very pleased to um, announce general availability of the Beamer CABR suite, both Beamer 4X and Beamer 5X um, into the encoding.com platform as another engine available for our end users. And so it fits perfectly in our kind of architectural and strategic strategy of the company. Um, and we believe that you know, Beamer has the best in breed solution in that space and that it makes a lot more sense for Beamer to be the expert there and continue to innovate in parallel with our job orchestration instead of trying to become a CABR vendor ourselves. Uh, and that's um, happened uh, quite a lot in the space where there's a suite of open source tools and kind of a brute force approach workflow where you can kludge this together yourself. Um, and we definitely tested that and, and, and stood that up in, a, in, a, in the lab. Um, but all of our comparative tests with Beamer operating at the frame level were pretty drastically better from a quality and speed perspective and fit in very well with our workflow. Of course, we're very happy to hear that. Uh, usually we don't talk a lot about uh, Beamer in this podcast, but uh, uh, we just had the opportunity this month to really announce the um, uh, collaboration with encoding.com. And uh, we're really honored you know, to be selected because of your uh, position in the industry as a leading um, cloud encoding uh, uh, vendor. Um, and the fact that you compared our solution to what's available there in terms of open source and uh, you know um, academic papers, blog posts, whatever about you know how you can make many encodes and then choose some heuristic to decide uh, among them. Um, we are very proud that uh, you know we've been pushing this frame level content adaptive encoding for a while, and uh, the fact that you know you have access to so many technology and so many codecs. And uh, you realize that this uh, frame level optimization is uh, is a technology that is the most suitable for uh, content adaptive encoding is really a great uh, honor um, 
for us. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Beamer technology is available on your platform? Is it through some sort of a web interface or an in, uh, API? Yeah, sure. Um, we have three integration methods available for customers within the encoding.com platform depending on the workflow's needs. We have a user interface where customers can um, submit a job um, manually, uh, configure all of the encoding parameters. This user interface is actually built on top of our API. So everything that's in the API from a very granular parameter level on each encoding engine is available in the UI. So it's a great way to test, validate workflows, compare different codecs, et cetera. And then we have a watch folder based interface. Um, and this is UI based as well, um, where you configure and set a workflow up in the UI and we will watch a particular directory for new content, grab it, encode it, and deliver it to the de destination. And then the third, and this is the lion's share of our customer base is integrated with our API. So they've integrated our API into their existing media asset management system, digital asset management system, and there's an ongoing flow of content coming from that system with a set of recipes to our API, and we respond back with job status and notifications, etc. And the Beamer engine um, sits within the all three of those integration methods, and um, set we came up at launch uh, worked with the beamer engineering team to come up with a set of parameters beamer specific parameters that we revealed in the api so most common uh, parameters used when fine-tuning their output parameters so it can be used um, as a you know, subset of the api with some configuration and we've often um, you know we've been live now for a few weeks and we're in testing with a few customers um, in, a, in a kind of pre-release scenario and we've put together some fairly comprehensive report templates for customers to access so that they can compare both quality uh, encoding rate file size uh, etc of the various codecs that we have um, in the API in the suite. So you could compare Beamer 4 to X.264 at certain speed levels or certain quality levels and fine tune it before you um, kind of go uh, to a production workflow. Yeah, I've seen one of these reports and it's really very comprehensive. I mean, it's one of the uh, most detailed reports I've ever seen about uh, Beamer's technology and comparing it to others because you have all of these uh, different... Um, uh, parameters and, and objective metrics and graphs. And then you can even press a button on the report and it op opens up a side-by-side -side video player that you can actually compare visually uh, the visual quality of the two encodes. And uh, it's really great work that you have done. And I assume you did it because uh, you deal a lot with uh, different codecs, right? You mentioned, I think, uh, having something like 40 different uh, encoders available, something like that. We do across, I think we're closer to 43 now. We, you know, we really add them when, when customers request a particular um, feature set um, that's not supported today in our API, whether it's a specific caption workflow, audio workflow, uh, video quality, like CABR, et cetera. And we've, so we've slowly evolved from just having a few engines to having um, yeah, over 40. And the report that we've, developed is, has really evolved 
organically out of out of this question that that arises as someone's trying to optimize their stack. But what they do is is provide us, um, you know, a representative set of content across their content library. So whether it's talking heads or action or um, some animated content, and then we kind of run and some target codecs, etc., and we can kind of generate this report on the fly for them to help them quantitatively and qualitatively um, analyze the different codecs and kind of help fine tune where they want to end up in production. Um, do you find that all of your customers are interested in CABR or are there certain segments that, you know, either it's not needed or, you know, there's some other approach? What are you finding? Yeah, I would say in general, you know, the largest target market for us is, is the actual streaming services and encoding.com powers a number of the large streaming services in, in market today. So premium license kind of Hollywood content. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Someone who has a large content library and very diverse set of content, right? A lot of these are, you know, aggregators of content as well. Um, and, and really looking to kind of fine tune a set of profiles across the different, you know, kind of vertical content segments that they have within it. You know, we also have some customers that are working on, you know, um, extending the uh, content libraries outside of the normal viewing um, scenarios of home or mobile, et cetera, into car and office and businesses, et cetera. And that, um, you know, whatever predominant amount of the content is going to be streamed over over cellular data networks, you know, becomes even more critical. So if, if you look at the, the main drivers, for content adaptive encoding and actually reducing the bit rates. Is it to improve the user experience when going over those channels? Or is it to save costs, save CDN costs when you're uh, delivering the content? And, and how much of it is driven by this uh, new kind of uh, uh, directive? Sometimes it's even an official regulatory directive and sometimes it's more of kind of a push in the industry as the networks gets get uh, really congested with video because of the COVID-19 situation and everybody working from home and watching from home and online learning and all of that, um, which has caused, you know, even major content providers to kind of uh, switch to SD or reduce bitrate, reduce the, uh, remove the top layer of their ABR set, etc. So, uh, What's the main driver you are seeing? Yeah, it's, it's funny you ask that question because we had an internal discussion about that just last week and, it, and, and, and the end result of our you know, very subjective polling on the topic was it's really split down the middle between so those that are really focused on VQ and those that are interested in, in file savings. But, but clearly the COVID-related, stay-at-home-related peak in video consumption has, has really raised this to the next level of visibility in these organizations. And I, and I think what I've seen, and I think I, I saw a lot of regulatory work um, start and requirements start in Europe, but I've seen it globally in that I think that a lot of the big publishers want to, not being forced to, but really want to be good global IP network citizens at this point in time. Um, and I think uh, you know, I, I completely support that. So it's a little bit of a, a altruistic people coming together to really kind of solve the problem instead of being forced by a regulation. So I think that's great to see. 
Yeah. Right. Be a good citizen of the internet. Don't waste unnecessary bits on, uh, in places that are not uh, needed. And I think that along with many other things that happened during the COVID-19, uh, such as working from home and remo remote learning and less travel, I think, and, and a lot of those will remain with us after this pandemic is over, I think optimizing bit rates and utilizing only the amount that you need and not wasting any bits, like you're not you're trying not to like waste food or throw things away or buy things that you don't need. Um, I think this will remain with us um, after uh, COVID as well. Um, because, you know, companies realize this is the right thing to do. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Content adaptive encoding is, is like sustainability for video, you know? Exactly. You know, almost, I think it was eight or nine years ago uh, when, when the company was only starting and we were still focused on images, image optimization using our JPEG Mini technology. We actually started a campaign uh, and uh, of, of sustainability around the technology. Uh, so we used the green logo and we tried to compute how much uh, carbon emission you can eliminate by uh, reducing the size of your photo collection, you know, by 40, 50, sometimes even 70%. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and we tried to push that. It was a bit early because even, you know, sustainability was not... Uh, a hot topic as it is today, uh, but I remember, you know, that kind of marketing campaign and positioning of um, our, our optimization technology for images as as being green. I think we I think we probably tried. I think I tried a similar thing um, very early on in terms of the kind of energy consumption reduction that would occur and the efficiency would occur that would be turning off on-premise encoding farms and moving them to the cloud. There's probably some truth to that, but maybe, you know, in some ways we're a little too early. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, one interesting uh, topic that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would, you know, would like to hear from you, Greg, is since you are in uh, so many different types of workflows and you're operating a lot of technologies, um, you have a pretty good view of, you know, where codec adoption is. Um, so I guess maybe to start, uh, which codecs do you support on the platform? Uh, and then, you know, do you have any, any you know, even anecdotal or, uh, you know, survey numbers you can share with us on kind of where usage is, at least for your customers um, across the major codec? Um, anecdotally, I will say um, we support um, you know, all the major codecs in, in market today um, and, again, are not necessarily first movers um, pushing a particular new codec that's, that's coming, uh, rather waiting for uh, browser and hardware adoption of that codec. Uh, and real customer demand before we will really kind of stand behind it and, and put engineering resources into kind of optimizing that particular codec. Um, you know, this year, what I've seen, um, and I think this is really driven by 4K HDR content, is a, a strong adoption of HEVC. Uh, and we've been waiting for, for that for a long time, I believe. <laughs> All of us, yeah. <laughs> 
one of those things that we were again uh, uh, in front of the industry and waiting for it, the industry to catch up with, uh, with the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And so previous years, I would say, you know, last two years, all of the workflows in HEVC, we've seen a lot of just been testing and non-production workflows. Um, we have seen some production smart TV based HEVC workflows, which was great. Um, but from a streaming service perspective, I see that this 4K and HDR and the maturity of the HDR technologies with the HEVC codec um, has really been a you know a watershed moment for it and, and we've seen that almost um, across the board as real production workflows go into place. Very, very excited to see that. I think AVC is still the workhorse. <laughs> it's still the uh, the workhorse of the industry, 80% H.264. Um, but it's great to see HEVC mature. Um, uh, it's great to see it in production workflows. I've got um, a number of great workflows, HDR workflows with Dolby Vision and the HEVC codec in market. We have a number of customers who have chosen HEVC as a codec for offline download uh, across all resolutions. Yeah, so we see some, um, some variation on whether you know, uh, there's one particular resolution they make available for offline download or multiple, kind of like a low, medium, and high, or just a low, high. There's a lot of momentum, I think, w w within that codec. Um, I've often joked about AV1, that it's um, kind of uh, kind of a hobby-based codec at this point, waiting for a day job, or, or maybe it's furloughed is a better way to, to exp explain the codec today. But... Um, I think it's got some fantastic promise, and I have nothing bad to say about the codec itself or, or its technology. It's just lacking, I think, hardware support. So when you say hardware support, that's missing on the decode side, or you're looking for the hardware acceleration for the encode? Yeah, I guess to some extent both, but, but for us, what's more important is just the decoding support for us. Yeah, okay. Besides codecs... Um, any other trends that you're seeing now uh, starting and will probably become uh, bigger in the future uh, when it comes to VOD and file-based encoding? Well, we support um, a lot of both streaming services that are AVOD and SVOD based. Um, and I see um, a lot of great innovation in creative and rich media experiences in the AVOD uh, experience. So a little bit of con contextual based targeting. Um, I've seen very clever implementation of, of the SCUDI 35 ad marker type um, in, in the HLS manifest, which allows for a pre-roll or mid-roll to come up and then interactive little logo or banner um, being minimized as an overlay over the content after that ad. So it's like a little reminder or call to action after you've seen the pre-roll. So I think, I think there's a lot of experimentation in the space now trying to find that balance between uh, maximizing advertising dollars but also not disturbing the, the consumer experience too much, making it interactive, making it engagement, and then starting to track AVOD you know, to, the, to the next level of detail and sophistication. It's uh, interesting this um, uh, shift, you know, between AVOD and SVOD. On, on, on one hand, you know, people are consuming 
more and more uh, subscription services for video. But then, you know, we, we do have an economic uh, downturn as a result of COVID-19 and people have less uh, income. Some of them don't have any at all, which means that maybe AVOD will, will start to become uh, more popular than it was before. Well, what's your take on it? Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. And I think, I think there's a lot of value in providing consumers that option. An option, I think, makes a lot of sense to not feel like you're forced into an AVOD model when you want to be an SVOD subscription-based model with no commercials or vice versa, where you don't want to spend the money um, month after month. And uh, do you have uh, ads being encoded on your platform? What we do um, is offer a lot of functionality and configuration on what we call stream conditioning. So that's really just preparing the manifest, the HLS or the dash manifest for the correct cue points for the ads to be inserted and targeted by a third party video advertising service. Okay, great. So, uh, Greg, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion. So I would like to thank you for coming on the Video Insiders and uh, sharing your views and uh, experience from the video industry. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, Greg. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.